and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is the podcast all about slow living in a fast-paced world. My name is Brooke McCallery. My name is Ben McCallery and welcome to the final episode of the summer series slash winter warmies. Now in this, uh, in this chat you're bringing us again, you talk to an environmental engineer and designer. This one fascinated me when we did this. Mm-hmm. And designer who applies data yep. and behavioural change strategies, techniques, to solve the world's environmental problems. Mm-hmm. I do. That's like the newest of new jobs. Well, yeah. They're the jobs that people used to talk about being created when we were still at school. Do you know that? Like the new jobs of the future? Well, we'll often say to our kids that there's every chance that the job that you end one of the jobs you end up doing throughout your career it doesn't, doesn't exist. exist yet. I think 60% or something of the yeah. jobs don't exist at the moment. But anyway. So on the face of it, yeah. that kind of blurb of this conversation would potentially suggest that this has very little to do with slow living. Uh, yes. You know, I don't talk about technology and, and using the, the, the technology that's at hand very often other than to to talk about how to distance managing (laughs) managing but this conversation has everything to do with slow living and particularly if you've listened to the podcast for the last 12 months or so you'll notice that our focus has 100% definitely shifted towards slowing down in order to create positive change for the environment sustainability has become a a much bigger focus just for me personally and that can't help but be reflected in the conversations that I have. So Absolutely. in this episode that I'm so excited to bring you, I speak with Katie Patrick. And Katie has written a book called How to Save the World. But she has written it from the perspective of using creativity, using technology, and using all of the tools that she's developed over the years to help ignite change on a global scale. But the thing that fascinated me most about this conversation is that a creativity and hope are at the heart of it in order to make change to the way that the world is 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 currently running we need to have hope Mm -hmm. and i think this is a beautiful place to finish the summer series because Mm. beginning the year ahead which will undoubtedly have challenges and anxieties for people who are paying attention to the environment uh Hope is one of the most important tools we can have in our toolbox. So for me, the fact that that hope and creativity go hand in hand was really important. But secondly, that we can't access that creativity. This is the kicker. Unless we slow down. Like yeah. neurologically, it's yeah. almost impossible to sit in that creative zone and I'll let Katie explain in mm. scientific terms, but to get into that creative zone where we start to solve problems without slowing down, without stepping back, without disengaging from tech and disengaging from the hustle. And to me, that was just so, so impactful to hear Katie talk about that. And I walked away from this conversation feeling much the same way I walked away from 2040, the documentary. Yeah. Which is hope-filled. You did. I mean, the first the first emotion that you fe- you felt, I think, was like, whoa. That was sort of like Keanu Reeves out of uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. That's exactly right. Like that's sort of where you were. And then. <laughs> I'd like to say, just for the record, my hair looked better. Uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. This is like the perfect episode to launch into to 2020 mm-hmm. uh, with... Uh, with hope. Mm. And I think particularly as for us, you know, the kids are about to go back to school, for probably Southern Hemispherians more so than Northern Hemispherians, like it feels like the year proper is mm. just about to begin. You know, things start to pick back up in the office. Um, like I said, kids are back to school. It, it's sort of now is the time for, that I often find myself focusing in on an idea or a word or a a concept for the year, and I'd love for mine to be hope this year. Mm. I, I think that that's going to be challenging. A new hope, but perhaps. Sure, yes, a new hope. I, only someone could ch- make a story about it. It, it is going to be challenging, though, I, but uh, a challenge worth fighting for. 100%. So I know this was a, a much-loved episode last year, and I'm really excited to bring it back to you. Head over to slowyourhome.com slash summer series for more information on this episode and those 
uh, last four episodes in the series. We hope you enjoyed the series. And the final word will be from Brooke. We are working on season five. Mm. Really excited to bring season five to you. I know a lot of you contributed suggestions and ideas back in November of last year as to what season five and beyond is going to look like. And I just wanted to say that we're really excited about what the podcast is going to entail this year and what this year is going to entail. But season five will be with you soon. I'm not giving you a specific date yet because it's important for me to not be proven a liar. Exactly. But we will be back with you with a a whole, a brand new uh, series shortly. Very, very soon. But until then, enjoy this chat with Katie. Katie, hello. How are you? I'm great, thanks. So lovely to speak to you. I've been um, head down in your book over the past few, well, past few weeks, but particularly the past few days I've been preparing and I'm so excited to talk to you about it um, because I think that perhaps people would would look at your bio, for example, as, you know, a as an environmental engineer and designer, someone who, you know, applies gamification to solving environmental issues and then slow living and wonder where the crossover is. But having read your book, there are so many places for us to dive in and so many places that your work and slow living come together in a way that I think listeners are really going to love. Uh, Because essentially, my audience is full of people who want to change the world, but may not necessarily know the best way to go about it. And that's what you're all about, how to change the world. So I actually want to start with optimism because if we're remotely interested in the world and the environment and the direction that we're heading as humans, it's really easy to feel overwhelmed and hopeless, which is something I talk to people a lot about. You know, the news feels like it's all bad. And I think that has a a way of making us feel like there's no point in trying. But you write about this in the book and you write about it so beautifully because you say we do have a choice, you know, do we bury our heads in the sand? Do we get angry? Do we get aggressive? Or do we tap into optimism? And you very much are in the camp of tapping into optimism. Can you tell me the power of it in the face of these huge issues that we're facing in the world at the moment? Yeah, well, to start with, the world isn't as bad as people think it is. Uh, Negative news tends to get a lot of psychological traction with us because we are kind of sensitive to fear responses. But if you look at the amount of solar panels that are getting installed, it's going exponentially up. The actual amount of carbon dioxide that America and Australia are putting out, uh, not just per person, but as a whole country, is actually going down. Uh, Many forest areas around the world are actually being replanted. There is an enormous amount of positive progress going on in the world. So I just wanted to um, kind of like burst that bubble if anyone's in a a sort of a a negative doom loop of thinking that although there are still bad things going on in the world, as an overall trend over the last couple of hundred years, most of the things that you could measure are actually getting better, except for carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. That's scary, but there's a lot of great good news in the world uh, to focus on that is that is measurable. So once you kind of start to understand that the world is really on, on a going in a positive direction, it's not going in a negative direction just because you saw something that was really scary on Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't mean to, to for, that, for that to sound condescending, but there are a lot of scary things on social media and it's easy to just see them and not see everything else. Uh, once you start to realise that the data is actually showing that the world is going in a a really wonderful direction and things actually are getting better, uh, kind of takes the burden off that to not be thinking in that kind of doom, that doom way. And you can start getting into this optimistic headspace. And the reason why we need to be in this optimistic worldview is that the, the process of making the world better involves being able to imagine the destination you want to go. Like, for example, if you want to build a garden in your backyard, a beautiful garden, right, that grows food and has flowers and everything, you need to first imagine that. You need to imagine that future reality. And you have to have an optimistic view that you're actually able to build that garden. You're able to make um, a mental model. It's called the positive constructive imagination. You can have it in your mind. And then you can reverse engineer that. And then you do all the things that you need to do, you know, find the plants and make the soil and do the compost, et cetera, dig, weed to make that happen. 
And that's the essential part of the creative process. And now you would not be able to build that garden in your backyard if you did not feel optimistic that you could achieve that goal, that you could actually make it happen. So optimism is a part of being able to actually first sort of imagine this destination of the world where you want to go, this is better, beautiful, inspiring world, and then be able to actually do all the stuff that it takes to get there. And optimism is very good for you. It's actually like a vitamin. If you look up op- the health benefits of optimism, everyone should get on Google now and look up the health benefits of optimism. And you find that optimists are happier, optimists are healthier, optimists live longer, optimists get paid more, optimists <laughs> save more money, optimists are able to um, achieve the goals that they set for themselves. Uh, optimists work harder, although we're not kind of really all about just working harder, I'm sure, in this community. <laughs> uh, but generally, it's like, it's really good for you. And it allows your brain to be in a, a more peaceful, optimistic, happier state. It means that your brain is in a healthier place. You're not releasing fear chemicals and doom chemicals and closing your consciousness off. So you really want to have optimism threaded through everything that you do. And it's not this like la-la land. It's actually about being able to imagine the destination of where you want to go and have the, the confidence and have the dopamine in the brain to get you to that destination just the same way as you building your own vegetable garden in your backyard. Right, and that's the difference, isn't it, that it's not this pie-in-the-sky kind of, you know, airy-fairy, woo-woo idea. It is actually real creative imagination. What if someone is, doesn't know the difference? You know, what? how can you differentiate between the two? Uh, well, for a start, I don't think there's anything wrong with pie-in-the-sky imagination. I mean, why not, you know? I mean, mm. let's say one thing that we need, the world needs to have is solar panels on every roof, right? So we might need to install, say, a million solar panels. That's a lot of solar panels. Do you want to go about that project of trying to figure out how to install a million solar panels with all the different politics and the different homeowners and different financial situations of everybody being like, oh, this is never going to happen. The government's against us. The world's full of corporations that are, you know, that are really greedy. People are really selfish. Uh, the you know by the time we do it it's not going to be worth it anyway because then all the glaciers will be melted and then you know just like bleh, right mm-hmm. or just being really angry and just being like well it's not my responsibility it's somebody else should be doing it uh you know that kind of thinking is not going to achieve what you are that kind of pessimistic thinking is not going to get you to install those solar panels if you think okay everybody we've got to install a million solar panels that's a really ambitious target we can both imagine, maybe maybe you do call it pie-in-the-sky imagination. You might be in that headspace, which I don't think there's anything wrong with, mm-hmm. but you need to be pretty optimistic to believe that you can do it. Like if you're going to run for something like the President of the United States, I mean, you would have to be pretty optimistic that you think you've got a chance of winning something that difficult. If you want to install the million solar panels, you need to be optimistic that you actually believe that you and your team and all the people working with you and your ideas are going to be able to, to get you there. Mm. Yeah. And I th- okay. So I think that's, that's the, for me, that's the key. You actually need to believe it. So it can be as um, fanciful or as pie in the sky, as we were saying, as you want, as long as there is a, a genuine belief in your ability to, um, to unpack the problems and solve them as you discover them. Yeah. Yeah. And like, for example, there's something I'm working on now. It's trying to increase green cover in cities. So we get satellite images of the the green cover and satellites can figure out what's a plant and what's not a plant um, through the infrared spectrum. And then we can work out, okay, one city has like 12% forest cover, but we want the city, it's better for a city to get up to, you know, 20 or 40% forest cover, not forest, but you know, urban forest, trees, green roofs, parks, etc. And now I, if I'm going to work on this and make this happen, I need to be optimistic that I'm going to be able to achieve my goal of getting the city from 12% up to 40%. And I'm going to be able to push on all the levers in the city to try and help get them to plant more trees and more green space. So it's it's basically just having a goal and believing that you can get there. Mm. And then comes the real innovation bit, which is how do you reverse engineer that to actually come true? That's where all the creativity and the innovation comes from. Yeah, I get so okay, and and which is one of the things that I mean when I was reading it in the book, 
it it's it's very rational to say, well, of course, we need to imagine first. We need to be optimistic. We need to come up with this solution, and then we reverse engineer to uh, to actually come up with the the you know the the physical solutions and uh, to to deal with any of the obstacles that that come up. And that makes perfect sense. And it sort of um, highlighted to me why so much of the messaging around current climate crisis and environmental issues maybe isn't hitting home for people who aren't already there because it's all negative. I mean, almost all of it is negative. And it's not that it's not true, but that negative messaging, does that not inspire change nearly as much as an optimistic sort of view? Uh, Not really. You may need a tiny bit of it. Uh, I think that the negative stories need to be dialed back about 90%. Mm -hmm. They should maybe be take about 10% of the conversation because I think it's good to have just like a little bit there to people let people know the seriousness. And then uh, the other 90% needs to be made about a vision of where we want to go. And it's not so much that it's not as simple as, you know, a positive message is good, negative message is bad. It's that with any type of message you put out there, you need to drive human beings to take an action, to do a thing. You know, they might be switching to an electric vehicle. It might be a, a mayor implementing a policy. It might be getting people to vote on something. It might be getting a school to put trees in. It could be anything from a single person. Maybe you're trying to affect someone quite senior who's going to affect a lot of people. But you can't affect change unless you're actually affecting a human being to do a thing. Mm. So using the positive parts of the brain, the parts that give us rewards, like make us feel good, like when we get like smiley faces and people say, you're doing a great job and feeling like there's an aspirational life ahead of us that we can go towards. That's what big fashion brands do. They present this aspirational life that we can that there are these really positive things we're going to get out of these actions. They're the things that are going to make us identify with those things and really want to be a part of it. Like if you're someone who identifies really positively with veganism and you think, oh, that's like it's going to be healthy and it's going to make me more beautiful and I'll have more friends and I'll be this great vegan person and you have all these positive associations with veganism, you're going to be really attracted to engaging the actual behavior, which is not supporting animal agriculture. You're going to want to be a part of that. Whereas if you have a really sort of negative attitude about it, you know, it's not going to trickle through to the behavior. So it's really more about thinking about it like a behavioral driver, what creates action and the creating the aspirational place for people, like the mental aspirational place. That's a, that's a good place. Like your, good things will happen in your future if you do this. Mm. That's a better way to get people to act. Um, have you heard of the the documentary 2040 that was released earlier this year? Oh, I've seen the trailer for it, but I haven't watched yeah. the whole thing yet. Reading your book and listening to you now, it reminds me very much of um, what you talk about, you know, presenting people with this hope-filled option for 2040. And I walked away from that, the screening of that documentary, feeling so full of hope and so energized that I went and made significant changes to the way that we were living literally overnight because it gave me something to work towards. Damon uh, Damon Gamow, who, who created it, that was his vision from the beginning. It was giving people a different story to believe in, Um, you know, one where we do make changes and we do use the best technologies and innovations at our fingertips now to create this this better future. And it's fantastic. I don't think it's out in the States yet, but um, when it it is, I definitely recommend for anyone, everyone to to take a a look because it's probably one of the most hope-filled things I've seen in a long time. Oh, that's beautiful to hear. I'm excited to see it. I was already excited to see it, but it's so warming to hear that you had that uh, you had that experience with it. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit to talk about creativity because um, you've just written a book called How to Save the World, which at its core looks at um, creativity and, and how to get into the creative process so we can come up with these great ideas and innovations that will change the world. And really what struck me about this whole part of the book is that in order to access the truly deeply creative parts of our brain, we need to slow down. So can you explain to me why slowing down is necessary and what the relationship is between slowing down and creativity? Yeah, well, that is the nexus between uh, the Slow Home podcast, your movement, and uh, and coming up with the ideas that will change the world. 
in the modern world where people are really busy, we tend to use what's called the, the cerebral cortex and engage in executive tasks, like things that you're busy concentrating, writing an email, maybe you're, um, you, know, you know, drawing something on your, on something technical on your computer, getting things done. Uh, and also if we are stressed, then we've got the amygdala taking uh, sort of some dominance over the brain, producing the fight or flight response. Now, if we're very highly strung, stressed out by doom messages, you know, about the planet or just life in general, that can actually reduce the brain's cognitive function by 30%. So if you're actually trying to do the technical side of coming up with ideas or implementing ideas, putting this negative shroud, the stressful and negative shroud around your brain, 30% is a lot to lose, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And now if you're only engaging in that executive function all the time you know being busy being productive getting things done you're not taking space to have all of that stuff chill out for a bit and use what's called the default mode network and there's this researcher phd researcher here's another great podcast who called the psychology podcast called scott barry kaufman he's trying to rebrand it as the imagination network because what happens is when you just chill out and you stop being busy all the time stop being stressed and you can just daydream, look out the window, just kind of sit back and think about stuff, those other parts of the brain turn off and then this default, default node network, otherwise known as the imagination network, starts to get activated. And that's mm. where you start to have ideas, new ideas and new creative connections start to come, come out. And you might have experienced it sometime yourself where you're really, really busy one day and then you just stop and then you just look out the window for two hours. Maybe not everyone does this. And then just something just comes to you. You're just like, yes, that, that, you know. And if you're not making space in your life, if you're not opening your hours of your day up to just kind of like a bit of nothing time to just let that default mode network kind of like uh, get activated, you're not going to be able to be making new creative connections in the way that if you're just like really, really busy all the time. Um, And another thing that's interesting about this kind of imagination and this default mode network is that you can have two types of imagination, like a good one and a bad one. So the default mode network can take you down a bad path, which is called the neurotic imagination, which is where you look out the window and then you're like, we're all going to die, glaciers are going to melt, husband's going to leave me, going to have bills to pay, and then you're just like, horrible things are going to happen and you should have never been born. And you know what I mean when you get that negative, negative loop? Absolutely. That's the not the positive constructive imagination Um, and you can get that way about anything but if you specifically go out to create time to use the positive constructive imagination which is you lay back look up to the clouds and think what would the city what would a city look like or maybe a school or my own garden or my town look like if it was totally environmentally sustainable and beautiful and happy and creative And just leave it open, leave that open question. And you can only do that if you are in the slow mind space. So we all have to get into that headspace to help get our best creativity out so we can have these ideas and this energy to make this world come true. See, that excites me to no end for so many reasons because it it is um, solid evidence that slowing down is necessary. It's not just a nice to have. Um, it's not just, you know, something that only some people get to do. Maybe it is something that some people feel like others, only others get to do. But I think that embracing this idea of daydreaming or for me, it often happens if I go for a bushwalk, you know, I'll go for a wander. It's nothing strenuous. I'll just go wandering in the trees. And a problem that I've been mulling over will obviously be working its way in the back of my head and suddenly this solution or this this new idea or this imaginative reaction will, will spring out of my brain. And it's one of the most incredible feelings, you know. So I think it's really exciting that we have scientific evidence as to the importance of this. And then it also gives people, um, you know, the opportunity to, to dive into their own creative imagination and start coming up with solutions. Now, I think that what some people listening to this might struggle with is that tension, right, between um, wanting to do and change and, um, you know, shift and grow 
and the need to slow down and allow ourselves and our creative impulses to do their thing. Do you have any any tips or suggestions on how to manage or how to even explain that tension to ourselves and explain to ourselves why it actually really is important if we're we're striving to make the world a better place to do nothing for a little while is necessary? Well, I've come to the worldview that channeling the creative force to make the world a better place is the meaning of life. Like I, I didn't start with that, but over the years and especially over the last few years when I've really focused on it, it is just rewards you back to no end. If you revolve your life around, you know, getting things done and getting your inbox empty every day and saving money, and this can be, you can do this as an environmental activist or as a uh, a, a right-wing polluting banker. This doesn't mean that if you run an organic food shop and you plant trees with children, you can still be in that type of mindset of just busy, busy getting things done yep. all the time. It's not like those of us trying to make the world a better place are somehow just naturally freed from it. If you're always in that, you're not going to be tapping into your true essence. So what I'm just trying to get at here is getting a deeper value system right and then developing your whole life around this deeper value system that every single person has a unique uh, something inside them. We're all genetically different and we've all been born into the world with different families, different places, different countries. And so we really do have something that's scientifically unique and we can have something to offer with what we have. And I think getting into that, finding that special, everything Oprah calls it, a unique fingerprint of the soul or whatever, Mm -hmm. channeling that in a way that it's going to make the biggest contribution to the world. That's why we're here. That's what it's all about. So if you bring that rather than having that as like a far distant moon in your kind of solar system of your life, but you bring it down to be the sun of your life. This is what I've done the last few years of my life. I make that the kind of sun of my worldview and the way I manage my day. Um, It's not something I'm willing to compromise on. And I think Mm. once it gets deeper into your value system, you can be like, well, I'm just going to make those two hours. I don't care what it takes. Like I will make those two hours to get into that space and then cleaning the house and paying the bills and all the things come after that. And since I've started doing that, I mean, it's, it's made a profound change in, in my life. I feel like I've been able to just like gather all this creative force and share it with people and build this community and uh, create all these new interesting connections, interesting projects, etc. I mean, there's nothing about it that I have a, not even an atom of regret about. It's, it's profoundly rewarding. So I don't know if that completely answers the question, but I think if you just make that your central value system, it's kind of like, you know, some people think that like they go to the gym at 5 a.m. no matter what. It's a little bit yeah. like that. Like you, yeah. just, you do it no matter what because that's what all the good things in life come from. It doesn't mean you become irresponsible, but you just you kind of make it centre to your core way that you run your life. And I think that's the key, you know. It's sort of a reprioritization, isn't it? You know, really sort of doing some head work and some heart work and figuring out what your truest values or your, you know, your, your highest priorities are in life and kind of get big picture about it and then shifting the way you do things in order to centre that. Yeah, I think... I mean, I really think that that's at the core of any change that we make. It's we're, we're choosing to do things with our time and our energy. So perhaps if we step back and ask if what we're doing with our time and energy right now is serving us and serving, you know, the greater purpose we feel like we have in the world or if there's something we can shift. Um, yeah, I think that's really, really good advice, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's really solid advice. And the funny thing to me about slow living and, you know, it's often tied to the idea of simple living, is that none of it is is simple. It's quite complex to, to work this stuff out. But at the heart of it, figuring out what our highest priorities and values are does simplify things because it's like, well, yes, I, I will get up and go to the gym at 5 a.m. Or, yes, I will give myself two hours of creative imagination space in which I can do nothing and, and see what comes of it. Yeah, I think that uh, it's, you know, it's intention really, isn't it? It's living intentionally. Yeah, well, I uh, I get up every morning and I will I, I aspire, I try to live this way every day and get up and I uh, aim before anything, right? Somewhere there is a child drop-off somewhere in this, in this morning. Uh, but uh, I try and say, well, universe, what 
do you want me to do? It's kind of like a question, like Mm -hmm. how can I best channel my creative force to do the most good in the world? And I do this before cleaning, before having a shower, before any yoga classes, before checking my email, social media, all of that. It gets top priority. And it's not through having enormous amounts of time or money or privilege. It's just a value system I've adopted to be uh, the most rewarding rewarding for me. And and I, I do that. And then I spend, after I've done a couple of hours of that, I spend the rest of the day trying to, you know, just normal life life management stuff. But in terms of where this fits in with being uh, slow or kind of simple or, or minimalism, is that in order to do this, I had to shred my life values way back into mm. what I thought was most important. And someone asked me this yesterday on a, a another another podcast something about you know life goals or whatever and I said I don't have any life goals anymore I'm not trying to like reach a savings goal or a social media followers goal or uh, a certain sort of life you know bucket list stuff I've just shredded it right back and all I try and do is um, channel my creative force to do things that are good and interesting in the world and have my human relationships with people and my child and I realize that that's kind of all I need in life really you know people pay me to do stuff and that's that's cool and the more creative work I do, the more people find me and hire me to do stuff. So that kind of pays the bills. And, you know, and I get great human relationships with that. I've got a great child. And I don't need any big goals to stress out over. So it's more like living in the present moment, channeling the energy rather than hurry, 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 trying to achieve something. Mm. Is that, does that make sense? Like, it does. It, it, it makes a lot. Of, it actually makes a lot of sense. I think it's quite counter to the way most people live. So I, I've spoken to people about this before as well. You know, the idea of living without goals or living without, um, you know, these big lofty ideas that uh, that we're, we're working and striving towards. And it's not something that a lot of people can do without a huge amount of reshaping you know the way they they live and think about this sort of stuff because I think that's like that's what we're taught that's what you do that's what success is it's having a goal and it's striving until you get there and then what you know you you come up with another goal but what I love is that you've essentially centered your life around this value you know these these two or three values and everything else ebbs and flows you know and I think that that is kind of simplicity in action and to me it's slow living in action even if it doesn't feel slow even if it's not looking slow in the in the normal sense it's essentially you're essentially someone who has figured out what's important to you and you've made space for it by letting go of other things and I think that that's um, a really admirable way to live and to bring it back to your book that's how people find the time and the space to make big changes for themselves and the world you know, I think it's um it's something we could all benefit from doing a little bit more. Did, I'm curious, did you ever do an exercise or anything um to to highlight what your personal values were? I mean, I wrote my eulogy when I was in my early <laughs> 30s and that helped enormously actually. I've heard that um, people really get a lot out of that. Yeah. <laughs> what about you? Did you did you have a, a moment or a catalyst or um, you know, some sort of exercise that you did, or was this just something you arrived at organically? I don't think there was a singular moment, but it was something that formed over a few years. There were two books that took me a lot closer to this worldview kind of daily practice I do now. And um, one was called The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks, who talks about your genius zone. And that, you know, you've really got to sort of step into it. I call it the creative genius zone, just add the word creative on top. But it's just that one thing that you are kind of supremely excellent at or love to do or get the most joy out of. And then, you know, no matter what happens, carving out time to do that and trying to get that to take up, you know, at least 50% of your work life. You never get it to 100% because there's stuff to do. But Mm -hmm. some people, it's like how often, how many, what percentage of your time do you spend in your creative genius zone? And people will be like, nothing zero Mm. never you know you want to get that at least like a little bit and get it up and so when I read that I was like okay I'm going to commit to at least an hour every day seven days a week no matter what and there was another one called uh, by Eric Meisel called The Artist Within and he talks about the same thing that was he talks about like you can't clean the house go to yoga drop the child off, um, pay all your bills, check your emails and then do it. And then by the time it's three or four o'clock and you're exhausted, you have to do it. If it means getting up at four in the morning, you know, you do it then. Uh, You do it before all the other stuff. You have to ruthlessly prioritize your creative, slow thinking time. 
before. Otherwise, the rest of life just cannibalizes it. And then what are you left with? And then people say things like, I don't know who I am anymore. Life's missing me by. I've lost my identity with having a family and being married. And uh, when you make this, this ruthless sort of time thing. So those two books really pushed me in this, in this direction. Uh, but also a few years before that, uh, which was about when my company Green Pages, we closed it down in 2010. I mean, I had lived the opposite of slow. I worked 100 hours a week, worked so hard, you know, at the office at 8 or 9 in the morning. We'd stay till 10 or even midnight most nights of the week, all working all weekend, you know, and uh, had built this company. And then uh, I got really burned out and then the company Mm. had died. And I wasn't too worried about that because I'd sort of become exhausted by it anyway and I kind of wanted to close it up. And even though it was all a save the world company, it was all about the environment, I really experienced how achieving all these goals, and I achieved so so many goals that people would see as conventionally successful. You know, I was invested in by the Murdoch company. I'd been on the front cover of BRW and of like several newspapers in Australia and on the ABC and the BBC and the Channel 10 News and all these magazines, it was in Vogue twice, uh, had a, I had 15 employees. The company was multi-million dollar valued on paper. I did all that stuff and then I realized that it all just sort of comes and goes and it doesn't really mean anything and it can go just as quickly as it comes and you can be doing one thing that's fabulous, having a red cup at one moment and then an hour later you're crying with your boyfriend mm-hmm. and you feel really alone and everything's bad. Like those, all that stuff doesn't doesn't mean anything. It doesn't necessarily mean your life is good. Life can be very bad in some ways and also have good external things. So I just realized that none of it really mattered and the only way to forge forward was to go through something really kind of purely creative and authentic and just let my life shape around that instead of racing to get to the next, you know, million this or thousand that or whatever like I'd been doing in my 20s. Because I think, I mean, Ultimately, what I discovered with goals like that or particularly external, you know, validation or external signs of success is you part of you thinks or part of me thought once I get there then I'll be happy once I do this then I'll be happy once I meet this goal then I'll be happy and you get there and you realize that just hiding behind that goal is another one and hiding behind that one is another one it's sort of this relentless um, pursuit of happiness that I've only ever found by turning inward and shifting my priorities to to other things, you know, to away from goals, away from external signs of success or status or, or whatever it was that I used to pursue. And it, it is it is really incredibly liberating. I mean, I think you've taken it to a place that I, I hope to get, you know, by your main focus of life is to, is to focus and um, operate within your creative genius zone. Uh, and I think it's, it's fantastic. Can I, can I ask, what does it look like if you give yourself two hours a day to be in this creative energy, what does that look like for you? Is it the same all the time or do you just let yourself be led by what's happening in your, you know, in your head or in your, your heart or whatever? Oh, I often work on different things depending on what's going on. And I don't want to oversell it as like the perfect recipe for making sure. everything work. I really, yeah. I really don't want to be like, I figured out all the answers and here you go. But it does figure out one really big answer, which is meaning and purpose. I never feel that I have an existential gap of meaning and purpose. And I feel pretty awesome about that. And I have a lot of great relationships in my life surrounding that. So that's great. And But all the other stuff in life, always full of challenges. So my process is or has been the last few years incredibly unglamorous and messy. So some people think it's like I wake up and then I have like a a peppermint tea and then I meditate on the moon and then I do like a little chant and then I get on my computer and I write. It's not like that at all. It's like depending on how motivated I am, sometimes I put my alarm on like really early, like four or five in the morning. Sometimes I just wake up like a normal hour, more like six or seven would be normal. Um, And whatever project is going, I just like open up my computer and I hit it. You know, that was the book. This is how the book got written before the child wakes up. I just open it up and I hit it and I'm just like get another few pages written or get often I do uh, like concept design or user interface design for environmental software. So Mm -hmm. I get ideas just constantly all the time for environmental kind of change ideas. I just open up Photoshop and I just hit it. Then maybe an hour or two later, the little girl wakes up. And so I give her some breakfast. 
Uh, sometimes I'll take her to preschool. Sometimes I'll put her on a cartoon. She wants to watch a cartoon for an hour or two. Uh, sorry, hashtag bad parent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so a little bit of bad parenting goes into this. So, yeah, anyway. Um, and then I kind of just make a little whatever I feel I have a little sense of achievement from it. It'll be like finishing a design. Designs usually take me two or three hours. So I'll be like, cool, I got that. Something that's kind of like shareable on Twitter. You know, I'll be like, mm-hmm. okay, cool, I got something nice. It's finished. I can share it. And then that's like tweeted out and then I feel like I've it's done. Mm-hmm. Um, well, sometimes it's writing. Sometimes I'll work on something that's written. Um, but it's usually just it's either a part of one big project, like the book was like, did that every day for six months. And that's how the book got done. And then other times I'm trying to get through a whole bunch of concept designs. So it's many little designs. Uh, and sometimes I just feel something that's just been buzzing in my head for like three years. I'm like, like I just did this one the other day, which was, I call the compostatron, which I had thought of five years ago, but I had forgotten it for five years. And then one day I was at the beach and I remembered the Compostatron, which is like a garbage can shaped like a robot, but it only takes compost because, you know, you can't compost when you're out on the street, like at the yeah. mall on the street. You have to like, if you're really devoted, you like put your banana peel under a shrub somewhere. Yeah. And I thought, you know, there's no way to do this. So, And I've read all this behavioral research that shows if you make a garbage can look like a fun animal, people litter less, like they put stuff in it because they get attracted to the novelty of the... Like feeding them. Yeah, and also because yeah. it's like something animate with like eyes, you know, like, I mean, a robot, maybe it's sort of like a bird because people get like an emotional attachment to something right. that's looks real. Then they, so they made these trash cans that look like birds. The litter went substantially down because people were attracted to the bird thing. So anyway, that's the kind of like design theory. And one day I woke up and I was like, the compostatron, this has to be put out. So I just spent like three hours. It's got nothing to do with anything I'm working on at all. And then I just put it together and then I put it out on Facebook and Twitter and everyone's like, oh, this is so cool. This is so fun. And I don't know if it'll ever turn into like a real startup or a project, but I'm really happy I did it and I'm happy it's out there. And uh, it's something that's like on my website and maybe one day we'll build it. So that's just a little random example of just something that just pops into my head and I do it. Uh, and sometimes it's more substantial sort of big project. Yeah. I mean, I, lo- I, lo- I love that though, because I guess in the, as you said, sometimes it's a big project and that just feels like a grind. You know, writing a book is a grind, no matter how passionate you are about what you're writing about. I mean, it's, it's hard work. Um, so sometimes that's what playing and working in your creative genius zone looks like. But I love that other times you're like, yeah, damn straight, I'll allow myself to do this compostatron or work on this thing that I can get done in a couple of hours. And no, it's not adding up to some bigger thing, but it is. I mean, it is adding up to a bigger thing. It's adding up to your output um, over years and years. And I think sometimes we get very, I know I get very um, over earnest about things, I'm like, but what is, where is the greater purpose in this? And um, I think it's, nice to know that by inviting this creative space into our lives sometimes it does look like what we used to call a distraction you know or we used to call wasting time I feel like maybe the idea of wasting time doesn't necessarily exist when you're in that zone well I don't buy that world view of wasting time I call it creative channeling you know it's not wasting time it's creative channeling the purpose of the universe through you while you're alive as an organism The universe has been evolving since it started many billions of years ago. You're here. It's trying to get you to do stuff, channel its force of evolution. You're just letting it do its job through you Mm. as the tool. Um, And if you you start to think about it as wasting time, that's a very negative, that seems like a very corrosive way to think. Yeah, I agree. Um, and it's funny, I used to think a lot of what I was doing was wasting time and nothing ever good came out of that, you know. It's when you allow yourself to to be playful and curious and, and, and creative, access that sort of positive creative imagination. So much more springs out of it. I mean, it grows from there. I feel like, yeah, if you shut things down by saying it's just a waste of time, I mean, nothing's going to grow there, is it? Uh, no, and you never really know what leads to what, you know. Sometimes, you know, you do a bunch of stuff and it doesn't really lead anywhere or something. Times you do something that does lead lead somewhere. I, I was just uh, just had a, a like a Skype meeting with a guy, I think it was like three weeks ago. I, I'd never met him before and he was like, oh, we're doing all this stuff with like augmented reality, trying to like see like the environment through the glasses. And I was like, 
that's cool. You know, these mm. glasses that show like a little hologram. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, hey, you know what we need to do? We need to have like an urban corridor where you like walk down and then you can like see the air pollution and you can like see the energy mm. efficiency of the buildings. And then everybody suddenly gets excited about sustainability because they can see it in this augmented way. I'm like, that's cool, right? So I just hit Photoshop. I had these ideas and I was like, oh, I could be like waste of time. That's not immediately, you know, like jobs to do. Yeah. But I was like, oh, I really got this idea buzzing in my head. I've got to get it on Photoshop. So I spent the weekend, maybe it was, I don't know, would have been 10 hours at the most doing these three prototype designs. I put them out on Twitter. CEO of Magic Leap, who's a billionaire, comments on them and shares them. Then everyone <laughs> else starts getting excited about it. Then they, all these introductions start happening. Um, and then and it was really just a few hours of my time. Yeah. And then I just put it out there. And then it's like all this kind of cool stuff is is happening now from what was really quite a, a, a fairly small slither of my time investment. But I just kind of let the energy take me over instead of squishing it out and being like, no, yoga class, clean room, yeah. do laundry. Yeah. <laughs> and albeit my child did watch cartoons that time. I was a really bad parent that time. But, but you, you know, you like, <laughs> I wish it would have been kind of if I was always trying to be the perfect parent, like I would have like gotten up early and taken her up a mountain. Uh, but I kind of make that judgment call that ultimately, you know, you can't do everything perfectly. So I chose to do that. And then, you know, next weekend I'll take her up the mountain. See, this is the thing. This is why I think so many of us wander around feeling so pressured by life, you know, achieving, quote, balance in life. I'm all about tilting. And you tilt into the creative project that has got your blood pumping this weekend. And then next weekend you tilt into going for a hike or you tilt into a camping trip or you tilt to going to the movies. You know, I just, I truly believe that we carry around so much guilt and stress and pressure placed on us by these expectations of being perfect. And that in itself shuts down, for me, that shuts down energy and creative thinking and, um, you know, my ability to just kind of go with the flow of things more. So that's why I'm all about tilting. I mean, there is nothing wrong with allowing your kids to hang out and watch screens for a few hours if you've got something that you're working on. I really truly believe that because I, I think that, yeah, that's just another way of shutting down the goodness that you've got inside you. And then we wouldn't have had your your workout and you like none of that would have happened, you know, had you been too worried about doing the the quote right thing at, at this exact moment in time. Um, yeah, I think you I, did do the right thing. I got plenty of like parent guilt though, don't worry. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think we all do. <laughs> it's not like, oh, you know, it's all, it's all perfect. But I did, you know, I did the next week and then I actually wrote down all the reasons why I'm a terrible mother. And I wrote down, I wrote down 18 things because I was carrying so much guilt. I've really got to process this. Yeah. And I looked through it all and I was like, okay, I've got to do something about this. Okay, brushing teeth, you know, really, you know, the, got to get on the brushing teeth thing a lot more and got to eat more fruit and vegetables. And so I kind of felt so guilty I went and invested in a bunch of improvements in the in the parenting. Yeah. Um, but also I see all these other women with, with children being highly structured about the way they uh, mother their, their children and putting a lot of stress on themselves. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure if it's really necessary. You know, like dinner has to be exactly 6 p.m., not 5 after 6, and bedtime is exactly 7.30 and I'm like, I have never followed a bedtime, never once. Like, I almost yeah. don't even know what they are. I'm like, we'll go to bed whenever we feel like it. And which is not that much later than 7.30, maybe it's 9. But, you know, sometimes it is bad and it's like 11 p.m. But just following this, like, as soon as I have a child, they're like, the massive structure comes on that you yeah bedtime, bedtime, da 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 And you don't have to. There's no law that says you, you have to feed your child at this exact time and be here at this time and do that by that and that their clothes have to be perfectly clean. That's a, a great deal of stress to adopt that the child probably doesn't even notice. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, actually. I think I felt, you know, when I first became a, a mom for the first few years, I really did try and stick to what I thought I should, you know, quote, should be doing, uh, which was having this very structured sort of existence. And I don't know if they were related or not. I so I was suffering with postnatal depression at the same time, so whether that's had something to do with it too. Um, but I was deeply unhappy all through that period and it was this gradual learning to let go of what I thought I should be doing and doing more of what felt right 
um, with my kids and with myself and the way we run the house. It's sort of a, a lowering of standards. It's a letting go of what other people think and of expectations. And it's working with the flow of things rather than kind of rigidly sitting in it and not moving. Um, and for me, I can only speak about my experiences, but I know I've found a lot more freedom in the flow of, of things rather than that, that rigidity. Um, but I do know that there are a lot of people who find it comforting, I think, to to have when you've got kids, you know what it's like. There isn't really, like they don't, they, kids don't operate on a timetable. They just don't. Babies don't, toddlers don't, older kids don't. And I think that um, for me anyway, it was trying to find control in amongst a world, like a life that didn't feel like there was any. Uh, and it's been interesting, like the letting go of that has actually given me the freedom that I was craving. I was trying to find time for myself by structuring and regimenting everything. Um, and it didn't work because I was too busy worrying about the next thing I needed to do. Was letting go was was actually the key for me in in finding that. Yeah, well, I think often this these uh, these experiences that are very negative, you know, like you have some severe depression or something very difficult happens in your life, and you have to confront it because life's pushed you into a quarter, and if you don't figure it out, then uh, you just get more sick or more depressed or have more anxiety attacks or whatever. So I think you know it's it's cool to when you have this, a very negative response to something to look at it almost like a like a, like a gift it's like something's trying to tell you like there's a breakthrough and it's really hard to do at the time because you're like the world's going to end you know but to see it like it's a it's a door to open to the next level of enlightenment and i think when you see it that way like i remember once feeling like so so in so much emotional suffering once i was driving through san francisco just being like why is my life so hard this is so difficult having a child and being kind of self-employed on my own and i don't have like close family and friends here the way i do back in australia and and then i was like what is it trying to tell me what is this sadness i'm experiencing trying to teach me right now there's some door i have to get through and I just got this big, like, message from it, you know, of, like, kind of, like, you know, the evolution of generation after generation after generation. It was like, well, you know, my job is to evolve, you know, from where my mother was and her job, she evolved from where her mother was. And this is kind of, like, my thing I have to, like, overcome to evolve to the new place. And then my daughter, Anastasia, she'll evolve. And I'm kind of, like, in a, in a place on a very long continuum of women. And I just kind of saw it as, like, this quest. And mm. it just felt the the sadness took a totally different shape then after that i love i love that idea of sort of communicating with it and saying well what am i what am i learning from this what's it trying to show me um yeah and i also love the idea that i i've never thought of it that way you know this this continuum of an individual's like evolution um kind of it's all adding up to something that's different for every person that's really incredible Katie, I could talk to you for hours about everything, but I just wanted to, to say thank you so much for joining me on the show. And also thank you for writing your book. Um, it's, it's really genuinely incredibly powerful. And I think that anyone listening who is interested in um, sh social change or environmental change or changing the world, saving the world, even if it's, you know, your small corner, or if you're thinking globally, to go and get a copy of the book. So I, I will put links to where you can get the book in the show notes. But um, if people head over to katiepatrick.com, you can find everything that you need to know about Katie and her book there. Um, so thank you again for, for showing up and, and sharing your story as well as, you know, all this stuff that's got my brain buzzing about creativity and slowing down. That's right. Thank you, Brooke. That was so fun. It's so lovely to talk about all these more uh, sort of qualitative and meaning-based things. I enjoyed it a lot. Thanks, Katie. Who is that? Hi, Puck.